whether you enjoy it or not, you're probably going to be visiting with the extended family this Christmas. As America has become more and more divided, so has the dinner table. When the topic of abortion comes up, will you speak up? What will you say? How will you respond to crazy Aunt Sally who went to the recent Women's March? With Christmas this week, here's your crash course on defending your pro-life beliefs and staying in the driver's seat during conversations. I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. Welcome to the show. Merry Christmas. Happy Advent to you. I hope you enjoyed our last week's episode on celebrating the prenatal Christ. That is what the season is about. It's about celebrating the Advent, the coming, the entry into human history of God, of God into a womb that he once created, being prenatally developed and stitching himself together in a womb that he once stitched together to enter human history to redeem mankind from their sins. That is what Christmas is about. And in the meantime, as we're welcoming the prenatal Christ and the unborn God. Our family recently welcomed our new uh, child, our new daughter, Annie Brave, on December 3rd, born two days early, weighing seven pounds and three ounces. So if you watch the show, please excuse the um, mountain man look as I have been doing the most pro-life thing possible, which is having and raising babies. But thank you for tuning into the show this week. If you haven't given the show a rating and review yet, please do that for us. Give us five stars. Let us know what you think. As I've mentioned, it really helps. It helps us show up on the charts. And as I have been saying, we've been in the top uh, 60, top 70 of news commentary category podcasts, being one of only two, I think, pro-life podcasts that are in that category at all in the top 70. So you're helping us reach more people. Please continue to help us do that. So are you ready to defend your pro-life beliefs at Christmas dinner? Very few of us probably have an extended family that is united religiously and politically, right? Unfortunately, that's kind of a rare circumstance. I'm blessed to have that experience in my family heritage, but you will probably be hanging out with family this Christmas who differ extremely politically and religiously. And I bet that's a safe bet. And so you know that these topics come up and they increasingly come up because our country's more divided than ever before, isn't it? I mean, there's people saying right now that there was zero election fraud. <laughs> and then there's people saying that this is the most election fraud in US history. And this is the most fraudulent election ever. You have people calling abortion reproductive health care and reproductive justice or telling you to vote for the party of abortion if you care about pro-life because democratic policies decrease abortions. And of course, you have you and me who understand that this is the dominant issue in the world today because more innocent human beings are murdered through state-sanctioned institutions than any other time in our history. So there's going to be division at the dinner table. And as the government has grown and our social fabric has broken down, politics becomes more of a frequent conversation. Why? Because we've had to turn to our government to fill in the gaps of social breakdown and decay in a way that we didn't have to in previous generations. And so unfortunately, politics has become more and more divisive and conversations on that division more common at the dinner table. So are you going to be prepared to advocate on behalf of our unborn neighbors and to speak truth lovingly, but boldly and courageously to those in your family who think differently than you. And now maybe you're thinking, well, Seth, I mean, I'm brave and I care about life, but really at the Christmas dinner table, can't we just put it off for another time? <laughs> well, probably a lot of the extended family that you see over the Christmas holidays, you probably don't see a lot of other times, right? So that might be one of the only times you actually have to graciously and winsomely share truth with them, truth about life. 
truth about the wonder of the womb, which is what this season is all about celebrating that our God entered a womb and became human. So why speak up at all at Christmas dinner? Why, why go out of your way to create quote unquote division, right? And well, that's one of the problems in today in America is that we tend to see division as something bad, right? Division can be a good thing if it enables you to pursue truth, if it creates a line of demarcation on issues so each party is very clear about what position the other person holds. And division can be very helpful in driving people to seek truth, right? If you're a Christian, you read the Bible, you'll see that God's very clear on how we should treat matters of sin in the church. I mean, he Paul ends up telling us that if your brother sins against you, take it to him. If he doesn't listen, take it to a few others. If they don't listen, take it to the church. If he doesn't repent, treat him like a pagan and a tax collector. Oh, I mean, Jesus, that's a little divisive. <laughs> well, why are you telling us to do that? Because the hope is that you win that person back to truth. You win them back to the Lord. So division is not necessarily a bad thing if its end cause is something good. The end cause would be truth, life, and defending life. So you should speak up at Christmas dinner because truth matters and lies are deadly. Nowhere is that more true than the issue of abortion, the lie that not all humans are persons or that the unborn isn't a full human. It's just partially human. It's, 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 like, it's like it's becoming human, but it's not like a full human. These are deadly, deadly lies. So you should speak up because truth matters. And maybe there's no one else in your extended family's life that they will see on a regular basis who will graciously and winsomely speak truth to them. You know, Nancy Piercy made this point. She said that Christians should speak out on moral issues, not because they feel offended or because their sacred beliefs are being compromised, but because they have compassion for those who are trapped by destructive ideas. And what is more literally destructive than the idea that we can kill unborn humans because they're not really persons? And those ideas become increasingly destructive because if we can deny the natural right to life to unborn human beings because they differ from us, why can't that same government deny certain natural rights to you because you differ from them in certain ways and you don't meet certain functional checkboxes that the government has now determined are necessary to meet in order to have rights? This is exactly what we did to Jews, blacks, and now to our unborn neighbors. And the last reason why you should speak up at Christmas dinner is because pro-choice propaganda and ideas are ubiquitous. They're everywhere. You don't have to go searching to learn pro-choice arguments or to be indoctrinated to think within a pro-choice worldview. It's in the mainstream media. It's in Hollywood. It's in our educational systems. It's ubiquitous. Who will counter that? Who will provide a light on a hill? Who will provide truth in times of chaos if not you? That's why you should speak up. At Christmas dinner. Doesn't mean you go around gratuitously offending people or making your extended family feel like rubes for accepting the pro-choice position, but because you have compassion for people who are just trapped by destructive ideas. So how do you do this? You must know what you believe and how to engage strategically in conversations, right? You can have a whole bunch of information in your head, but if you don't know how to engage strategically, winsomely, graciously in conversations, all of that knowledge might not actually be that effectively applied if your goal is to change that person's mind and put a stone in their shoe. So this is significant because there are many people out there waiting to attack you in everything you believe in. And they know how to defend their ideas, right? However bad they may be, they know how to defend their ideas. Few people are more passionate about defending their beliefs 
than pro-choice individuals. And if you won't show the same type of passion for life and protecting life as the other side will for death, I don't know if we can win this country back from the abortion cliff that it's running off of. So the takeaway in this episode today is that I'm going to help you create meaningful and effective dialogue with people who may not see things the way you do. You're going to learn valuable strategies on how to keep cool under fire, stay focused on the main thing. So we're going to equip you to ask sort of key questions designed to reverse the burden of proof and put you back in the driver's seat of conversations on abortion. Because if you listen to the show, maybe you know a lot of content and knowledge about the issue of abortion. But how do you ask key questions in conversations to guide it in a way you want to and with your end goal of creating cognitive dissonance in the minds of your friends and family members? And we're going to get to more of that next. But first, if you like this show and want to hear more great content and commentary from the front lines of the abortion wars, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash unaborted patreon.com forward slash unaborted and become a patron of the show this is what helps us increase the production quality of our show eventually move to two episodes a week and be able to bring a team and create interactive content on college campuses or in the public square kind of applying these ideas into what into conversation which is what this episode is about and and showing people how to do that effectively to change more minds change more hearts and save more lives. So if you want to help us do that and support this show, go to patreon.com forward slash unaborted and we'll be right back with a whole lot more. So you must know what you believe and how to engage strategically in conversations, okay? So this will be a little bit of an evergreen episode for you guys. We're gonna dive right into this. I'm gonna give you three key questions. We're gonna role play these out and hopefully you're gonna get the sort of conversational mental scaffolding in place that you need in order to engage effectively in these conversations because I want you to be effective. I want you to be able to create cognitive dissonance in the minds of your family members that you're gonna see over Christmas in order to move them to become uncomfortable with their position so that they abandon those pro-abortion ideas and embrace the pro-life position. What you believe and how to implement what you believe strategically in conversation. So let's start with what pro-life ambassadors believe. What do we believe? Now, I'm going to do a – I'm going to fly through this because we're going to move more into the how, how you apply that in conversations. And I've done evergreen episodes in prior Episodes on unaborted on the what we believe and how to defend what we believe. Okay, so if you want a full length sort of addressing of this, go find the episode, You Can Be a Pro-Life Apologist, or my talk, Why Everyone Should Be Pro-Life, which is also an episode on unaborted. So you scroll down, find You Can Be a Pro-Life Apologist or Why Everyone Should Be Pro-Life, and you're going to get the long form of what I'm about to fly through. So firstly, what do we believe? Well, we as pro-life individuals focus on one key question, right? Which is, what is the unborn? You cannot answer the question, can I kill this? Until you firstly answer the question, what is it? And we answer the question, what is the unborn? By turning to science. The science of embryology teaches us that from the moment of conception, the unborn child is a distinct living and whole human being. It's not partially human. It doesn't slowly become a human. It is a human from the moment of conception. Distinct because it's separate from the mother and the body and her body is not her body, living because dead things don't grow and the unborn child meets all the requirements for a living thing, and whole because the unborn child already has everything they need to realize their full growth and development as a participating member of the human species. That's what the science of embryology teaches us. We answer the question, what is the unborn? Fill
philosophically by making the point that there's no essential or meaningful difference between the unborn human you once were and the born human you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. Any differences between unborn people and born people that are used to justify killing unborn people can also be turned right around to justify killing born people. And the only four differences between unborn people and born people are size, level of development, environment, and dependency. Yes, the unborn child is smaller than the newborn child, but newborn children are smaller than toddlers and toddlers are smaller than teenagers. I'm six foot three. That doesn't make me more of a person or any greater right simply because I'm larger than you. Level of development. The unborn child is less developed than the newborn, but newborn children are less developed than toddlers and toddlers are less developed than teenagers. Your children are less developed than you. That doesn't mean they have a a sort of less right to life than you do. Yes, the unborn child is located in a different environment. It's called a womb, but that's where we all once came from. And where one is has no bearing on who one is because the child only moves six inches. And lastly, yes, the unborn child is dependent on the mother, but that dependency doesn't stop after birth. If you leave an infant in a crib and do nothing and they die, you'll be charged with infanticide. And if the mother says, my breast, my choice, my body, my choice, I don't have to feed that child because I have bodily autonomy, that argument won't hold up in a court of law. Lastly, if we can kill unborn children because they're dependent on their mothers, can we kill born people who are dependent on heart pacemakers, kidney machines, insulin, caretakers, and life support? Of course not. So that broadly speaking is what pro-lifers believe. We say the science says it's a human, that's objectively true, and all humans are persons because any category you create to strip personhood from the unborn child is a category that can be applied to stripping personhood from born people as well. In short, the only way to maintain human equality is by grounding human rights in the only thing we have in common, a human nature. A human nature began when we were human, and when did we become human? The moment of conception. So I know that that was very fast, but again, we want to get to how to engage with that content strategically in conversations. And if you want me to dive deep into all of what we believe, go listen to you can be a pro-life apologist episode. So how do we engage strategically? The main point here, you guys, is that too many pro-lifers assume the burden of proof in discussions on abortion when they shouldn't, right? For example, if I claim, if I'm with you, we're having coffee, and I say, hey, look, there's a pink dinosaur behind you on the wall behind you, right? It, it's not up to you to prove me wrong. It's not up to you to refute me. It's up to me up to me who made the claim to prove that it's demonstrably true. If I make the claim, I bear the burden of proof. So when you're under fire, you can get back in the driver's seat of the conversation by asking three key questions. And the goal is not dominance, okay? The goal is clarity and truth. The goal is to create cognitive dissonance in the minds of the people you're talking to so that they become uncomfortable with their ideas and hopefully reconsider or abandon their ideas. So this Christmas dinner, you may have extended family members who make certain claims about abortion and what they believe. If they made the claim, simply ask them to provide the evidence. Simply ask them why they believe that. Don't assume the burden of proof yourself to prove them wrong if they made the statement, if that makes sense. So what's the first question we can use strategically, right, to sort of apply in these conversations? And these are evergreen questions. You can use these at any point in really conversations on any topic in order to pursue clarity and truth. But you can phrase these questions in different ways to accomplish your same goal. But the first question is called, is simply, what do you mean by that? Okay, what do you mean by that? And the purpose is to gather information from the person you're talking to so you can accurately understand your critic's view. 
Okay. And by the way, this question dignifies the other person because who doesn't like talking about themselves? If you're asking questions about what your friend or family member believes, that humanizes them. That makes them feel respected, right? They're saying, wow, Billy really cares about. Billy wants to know what I think, right? So don't ask, don't ask it like a jerk. Don't ask it in a sneering way. Ask it like you're honestly curious because you want to know more. What do you mean by that? This question allows you to respond in a better way after you've received lots of information about why your friend or family member believes what they believe. What do you mean by that? So here's a personal example. I spoke at a Catholic high school in Long Beach pre-COVID at the beginning of 2020. And during the interactive Q&A session, which was quite fiery, this is LA County, right? Just because it was a Catholic high school didn't mean that the student body or even the majority of the student body was pro-life. In fact, many of them were pro-abortion. And this woman said, I'm not for abortion, Seth. I'm not for abortion. I'm for the choice of the woman. I'm for the choice of the woman, okay? Now, rather than saying, yeah, choosing death, you sicko, I simply said, what choice? What choice are you talking about? She said abortion. And I said, and what is abortion? And in a Freudian slip, she said, killing a baby, oops. <laughs> right, reality became evident to her in that moment. Notice, I was just asking questions about what she meant by the words that she said, by the statement she made to force her to defend it. And to give me more information about why she believes what she believes. Notice most people don't know why they believe what they believe, particularly on difficult moral issues like the issue of abortion. Most people can't offer an adequate defense of their position. And I was able to show that through that question. So what do you mean by what you said, right? So I said, can I repeat back to you what you just told me? <laughs> okay, I said, according to you, you're not for abortion. You're just for the choice of women to kill their unborn babies. I said, that is being for abortion. And that is the same thing that many racists said about slavery. They argued they weren't for slavery. They were just for the choice of plantation owners to decide whether to buy blacks and treat them like cattle or not, right? So I was able to repeat back to her what she told me because I asked her more about what she believed. Here's some other examples, right? People tell pro-lifers that we shouldn't force our views on others. You shouldn't force your views on others. Now, instead of saying, I'm not doing that, I'm not doing that, simply say, really, how so? Right? Ask, ask a, what do you mean by that kind of question? How so? How do we do that? Force them to answer the question. Right? Pro-lifers are told that, well, embryos are just a mass of cells. Instead of saying, no, they're not. No, they're not. They're a whole human being. That's what Seth told me about the science. <laughs> Instead of telling them they're wrong, ask them what they mean by that. They made the claim. So embryos are just a mass of cells. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by mass of cells? Right? Pro-choicers tell us that I have a right to choose. Simply ask, choose what exactly? They say, abortion is healthcare. Ask them, what do you mean by healthcare? And they say, women have a fundamental right to an abortion. Wow, big words, fundamental right to an abortion. Ask them, what do you mean by fundamental? And where does this fundamental right come from? See, there's so many questions you can ask of your friends and family members when they make these large claims on the issue of abortion. Okay, what do you mean by that? That's the first question. And you can phrase it in different ways, right? Like how so, choose what, what do you mean by the word that you said? There's different ways you can phrase it. But again, the purpose is to gather more information about your critic's view. Okay, we're gonna get to other questions next. But first, given that it's the holidays and given that it's a time to see extended family and hopefully create exciting conversations about these issues, I wanna tell you about an awesome way to make your pro-life voice heard while also supporting pregnancy resource centers that are on the front 
lines of this fight. I'm talking about Be Blessed Baby. I've told you about them in recent episodes. Be Blessed Baby is a new company trying to make a difference in the fight for the unborn. And they have apparel that you can wear to rep your beliefs and create conversations on life. Be Blessed Baby sells pro-life clothings for babies and adults and also masks. If uh, if you're going to have to wear them to grocery shop, might as well make your pro-life beliefs heard, right? The goal of Be Blessed Baby is to save as many babies as possible from abortion. So get your apparel now at www dot beblessedbaby.com beblessedbaby.com and show the world that you are proudly pro-life okay we're going to get to these questions more in just one second thanks for staying tuned we'll be right back So what do you mean by that? Remember, that's how you get the information about what your critic believes so that you can more adequately respond with your beliefs by countering the claims that they've made because you ask them a lot about what they believe, right? So what's the second question? Second question is how did you come to that conclusion or why do you believe that, right? How did you come to believe that or why do you believe that? And the purpose here, okay, is to reverse the burden of proof and get you out of the hot seat. It forces your critic, to give reasons and evidence for their claims, right? So they've told you more about what they believe because you've asked, what do you mean by the claims you said? And now you're asking them, okay, now why do you believe that? And how did you come to hold that position? You're just curious, right? You're just a, you're just a, you're just a curious guy that wants to know kind of what happened to lead you to believe these things? Why do you believe that? And what reasons do you have for believing that? And that forces the critic to defend the claims they've made. Remember, if you make the claim, you bear the burden of proof. So rather than telling them that they're wrong for believing what they're believing and launching into a pro-life apologetic, which you will do in a second, you're asking more about the why, okay? And remember, most people can't offer an adequate defense of why they believe what they believe. They're just repeating tropes that they've heard in the news through their schools and through their friends or coworkers. So here's a real life example of how this can play out, this question of why do you believe that or how did you come to that conclusion? A pro-life activist and Christian apologist friend of mine named Jojo Ruba, um, who does ministry up in Canada, was once at a pro-life display at a university in Canada, and a professor brought all of his students out from the classroom to come view the display. And this professor had the gall in front of his class to walk up to my friend Jojo Ruba and say, those pictures are fake, right? So it was pictures of the baby in the womb and then abortion imagery of what abortion does to that child. And he said, those pictures are fake. And rather than my friend Jojo launching into an apologetic as to why they weren't fake, he simply asked, what do you mean by that? And then he said, tell me, what do real abortion pictures look like? (laughs) Okay, the professor made the claim. So he said, what do you mean by fake? And if they're fake, what do real ones look like? And the guy had no clue what to say and was totally silent. Because he he didn't know that that was true. He just didn't like those images. And he wanted to discredit the claims of the pro-life group and the evidence of what abortion does to the child by claiming that they're fake. Fake news, (laughs) but didn't offer any reason as to why he believed what he believed. And my friend Jojo just asked him, just asked him, what do real abortion pictures look like? I had no idea. See, Jojo reversed the burden of proof back onto the person making the claim. Okay. How did you come to that conclusion or why do you believe that? Here are some other examples. You probably, you know, you know this one, right? In our relativistic postmodern culture, people say no one can say which beliefs are right or wrong. No one can say what's right or wrong. Now, what would be the question or response to this? Something like this. Then why believe you? (laughs) 
Why, why believe you? You would have to have access to truth in order to make that claim that no one can say which beliefs are right or wrong, including that belief. So why trust you, right? They're why questions. Why do you believe that? Here's another one. People say, well, no one religion or person sees the whole truth. Okay, so maybe different religions have aspects of the truth in them, but no one, no one can really see the whole objective truth. It's hidden from us. It's not self-evident or apparent. No one religion or person sees the whole truth. Well, how do you know that each religion or person only sees part of the truth unless you yourself can see the whole truth, which was something you just claimed was impossible, <laughs> Right. Again, they're why questions. So obviously, I didn't just ask, how did you come to that conclusion? I'm rephrasing the why do you believe that question by placing the burden of proof back on the person who made the claim. No one religion or person sees the whole truth. How can you know that unless you had access to the whole truth, something you just denied, right? What about this claim on abortion? People say thousands of women died from illegal abortions before 1973. You probably heard that one, right? You won't believe the bloodbath of women dying from illegal abortions before it was legalized. Now, I have data that can show that's false, but rather I'm just going to ask, how do you know that? Guess what? Most people can't give you an answer. Interesting, right? So look, you're guiding the person you're talking to on the conversational path towards truth rather than just telling them they're wrong at the face of it. How about this claim? People say fetuses are not self-aware. They're not self-aware, right? Simply ask, why is self-awareness a value-giving trait? Or, or why is self-awareness and the possession of self-awareness necessary for personhood and value. Why, 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 why? Okay, these are why questions, forcing the burden of proof back on the person who made the claim. People say pro-lifers are just trying to legislate their religious views. Here's a question. Do you believe that a religious view that says we shouldn't kill innocent human beings is bad? <laughs> who cares if it's a religious view if it just says we shouldn't kill innocent human beings? And lastly, people say we need abortion because women who are raped shouldn't be forced to give birth. And you ask, do you think it's just to kill toddlers for the crimes of their father? You're forcing them to defend their claim, okay? So the first question is, what do you mean by that? To gain more information about what your critic believes. The second question is, how did you come to that conclusion or why do you believe that? And the third question is now where you set yourself up to provide your defenses to why you believe what you believe or to expose the absurdity of their position, ready? Given everything they've just told you, <laughs> given everything they've just told you, you say, look at where this leads. Okay, this is a philosophical strategy called reductio ad absurdum, where you reduce your opponent's argument to absurdity by carrying it to its logical conclusion and asking your critic if that logical conclusion is something they're comfortable with. <laughs> Does that make sense? Okay, so the last question is, have you ever considered the implications for your view? Now, again, these are sort of stand-in questions because they can be rephrased in different ways, right? What do you mean by that will be filled in by the thing that they actually are talking about. What do you mean by choice or healthcare? Similarly, have you ever considered the implications of your view can be rephrased to say, have you considered that if we can kill babies conceived in rape, then we could kill toddlers for the crimes of their father, et cetera, right? So the purpose here is to show that your critic must pay too high a price to continue holding his view, right? You want to show that the implications of his worldview and position lead to moral atrocities, okay? Lead to disgusting, uncomfortable ideologies and consequences so that they abandon it. And Abraham Lincoln was very good at this. Here's a historical example. 
Abraham Lincoln wrote a piece called Fragments on Slavery in 1854. And on this little parchment of paper, which we have, he was writing down and responding to the absurd nature of pro-slavery arguments, okay? And he was taking the pro-slavery argument, okay? And he was saying, look at where this leads if you apply it consistently, okay? Here's what I mean by this. He says, you say A is white and B is black. It is color then, the lighter having the right to enslave the darker. Take care by this rule, you are to be a slave to the first man you meet with a fairer skin than your own. Do you see what he's doing? He's saying, okay, slavery supporter, if skin color confers value, but skin color comes in varying degrees, then it would follow that anyone with a lighter skin than you, plantation owner, could enslave you. Oh, have you considered the implications of your view? Do you see? Lincoln continued and said, you do not mean color exactly. Okay, you mean that whites are intellectually the superiors of blacks and therefore have the right to enslave them? Take care again. By this rule, you were to be a slave to the first man you meet with an intellect superior to your own. And lastly, he said, oh, but you say it is a question of interest. And if you can make it your interest, you have the right to enslave another. Very well. And if he can make it his interest, he has the right to enslave you. These are the implications and consequences of pro-slavery arguments. We want to do the same thing in conversations on abortion, okay? After asking, what do you mean by that? And getting a lot of information. And then secondly, by asking your critic why they believe what they believe and how they came to hold that position. Now we want to respond by saying, look at where your position will lead. Okay, so here's some examples. People say, you shouldn't judge, right? Stop judging me. If I want to have an abortion, I can get an abortion. No one, it's, don't apply your truth on my truth. You shouldn't judge. Well, have you considered that you just did? You're judging me for judging you. That's a judgment, <laughs> right? The implication would be that you're doing the same thing that you accuse me of doing. Here's another example. People say, fetuses have no right to life because they're not self-aware. All right, here's the question. Have you considered that newborns are not self-aware either, right? Hey, pro-choicer, if self-awareness is a value-giving capacity, so that's your argument for killing the unborn, that would work to justify killing newborns as well. Are you comfortable with that? The implications of your view? Do you see? Here's another one. People say fetuses have no desire to go on living. <laughs> they don't have any desires, so it doesn't matter if we kill them. Have you considered what follows from that? We know from science, from studies, that the capacity to desire anything doesn't occur until several weeks after birth. Can we kill those infants? Of course not. And lastly, people say, pro-lifers should stop telling women how to live. And then you say, well, have you considered that telling someone not to do something is telling them how to live? <laughs> telling pro-lifers that they should stop telling women how to live is telling them that the way pro-lifers should live is by not telling women how to live. So you're telling pro-lifers how to live, which is what you just told me I shouldn't do. Do you see? Okay, have you considered the implications of your view? So let's kind of put it all together. Let me use all three questions together here to strategically reply to critics and kind of just give you this role play for how you might implement these and how this might play out at the Christmas dinner table, okay? But again, you can, you can go to these go-to questions to get yourself out of the driver's seat. So don't feel this massive burden of proof to prove your beliefs at every contentious point. Simply resort to asking questions. This is the Socratic method, the art of asking questions to get at the truth, okay? And to go on a conversational path towards truth with your family members. So let's go through all three questions on a few different points. People say embryos have no desire to go on living. They have no desire and thus no right to life. Okay. Let's start with what do you mean by that? What do you mean by desire? What do you mean by desire? Do you mean one that I'm consciously aware of? Right? Okay. Second question. 
why must, why, right, why, why do you believe what you believe? Why? Why must I have a conscious desire for something before I can lay claim to it? In other words, why is having conscious desires a value-giving trait in the first place? You're merely assuming that having desires equals having rights. And lastly, have you considered that a slave can be conditioned to not desire his freedom, but he's still entitled to it in virtue of his humanity? Also, what if my desire to live is greater than yours? Did you know that the Buddhist's goal in nirvana is the eradication of desire? Did you know that? That's what nirvana is to Buddhists, is they have no more desires. So let's say they achieve nirvana. Can I murder a Buddhist who's achieved nirvana? Because if he doesn't have desires and I kill him, then I haven't violated his desires. And according to the pro-choicer, you don't, you don't deny someone rights unless you deny them desires. Oh, interesting. Have you considered where that would lead? See, here's another claim. People say the Bible is silent on abortion. Therefore, abortion is okay. The Bible has nothing to say on abortion. Well, what do you mean by silent? Do you mean that the word is not mentioned in the Bible or that we can't draw conclusions from what is written? Are you saying that whatever the Bible doesn't expressly condemn, it condones? And if not, what's your point? Because there's plenty of things the Bible doesn't condemn, right? There's plenty of things, but that doesn't mean it condones them. Okay, what do you mean by silent? Second question, why do you think, why, why do you think the biblical authors don't mention abortion by name? What are your reasons for thinking their silence justifies abortion, right? Why do you believe that the silence of scripture on the word abortion means it justifies abortion? See? And lastly, have you considered the Bible doesn't condemn many things by name, including forced female circumcision and lynching homosexuals? Does that make them okay? Because the Bible doesn't condemn them, so it must justify it, right? Because you just said that the Bible justifies abortion because it's silent on abortion. Of course not. Okay. And a couple more here. People say laws can't stop all abortions. They're going to happen anyways, even if abortion's illegal. So let's just keep it legal. Okay. First question. Do you mean all or most? <laughs> Obviously, the law is going to stop some abortions. Do you mean laws can't stop all abortions or laws can't stop most abortions? Second question. How do you know most women won't obey the law? <laughs> many women may. Many women will. H how do you know that we shouldn't pass laws against abortions because most women won't obey the law. How do you know that? And lastly, have you considered that laws against rape don't stop all rape, but they do stop most? And we wouldn't want to get rid of those laws simply because some men still break the law. Why should it be any different with abortion? And lastly, people tell us that women have a right to do what they want with their bodies. Bodily autonomy, right? Well, what do you mean by right? right? Where did this right come from? And what do you mean by body? Because if the unborn has their own body, wouldn't they have bodily autonomy? See, what do you mean by that? Okay, secondly, do women have complete bodily autonomy? Would you defend a woman using her body in a way that wounded others? Right? Why do you believe that women have bodily autonomy? And do they have complete bodily autonomy or only on abortion? See, these are the why questions. And lastly, have you considered that the government regularly pre prevents people from exercising bodily autonomy when they pass laws against streaking, uh, drunk driving, and child abuse? That is the government saying you cannot use your body in this way. <laughs> have you considered that, right? So you're trying to create cognitive dissonance. You're trying to create, you're trying to get your critic to become uncomfortable with their position, so that hopefully they're willing to be honest about the flaws in their own argument and eventually abandon their worldview. So ambassadors for the unborn must master what they believe 
and how to engage strategically on the battlefield of abortion. And for you, that battlefield will most likely be conversations, right? You probably have another job. Maybe you have a family. You're busy. Sure, you donate to pro-life causes, but you're a busy person. Most of your engagement will hopefully be outside of abortion clinics if you can volunteer to save children. But a lot of it will just be in conversations, one-on-one with people that you do community with. How do you engage strategically? Here are some helpful tools to do that, okay? I hope that was helpful. If you want to get some hands-on practice, by the way, I have an exciting little opportunity just to pitch to you, okay? A little Christmas present. If you'd like to role-play a conversation with abortion on me where we apply some of these questions and we kind of go back and forth and I can kind of push you and test you and and, in a safe environment where you feel safe so that you get better and better at defending your pro-life beliefs, okay? Then we have a a little uh, competition here. The first person to become a patron of Unaborted this week, okay? It's Monday. This episode's being released. The first person to become a patron at $20 a month or more will get access to a perk that only is available to the $75 a month patrons and above. And that's a one-on-one Google Hangout with me where I'll give you a pro-life apologetics training and role-play arguments over abortion so you can see how they work and how to respond. And we'll apply a lot of this one-on-one, putting flesh onto this conversation in reality you and me going back and forth. Okay, so first person to jump on as a patron at $20 a month or more by going to patreon.com forward slash unaborted, and I'll get the notification of who does that first. We'll get an hour-long Google uh, one-on-one hangout with me where we'll put this into practice, and hopefully that'll be helpful for you, okay? Well, thank you guys for joining me today. Merry Christmas to you. Happy Advent, okay? Let's celebrate the greatest unborn child ever, the creator of the universe who entered the womb of a virgin woman in a womb that he once created as we celebrate and affirm the dignity of all human beings who are created in the image of our prenatal God that we are called to protect value and advocate for. Give the show a rating and review. Let us know what you think. Subscribe on iTunes, YouTube, Spotify. It really helps. We want more people engaging visually with our content on YouTube as well. And if you want to learn more and engage with me online, head on over to sethgruber.com, S-E-T-H-G-R-U-B as in baby boy, E-R.com to sign up for my newsletter and get regular content delivered to your inbox, as well as to view my speaking schedule, which is taking off in 2021. Thank God even in the midst of the shutdowns. I will be at, I think, 10 churches in a row on Sundays all the way through March 7th. So stay tuned if you want to come hear me speak live and local. Until next week, I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. (laughs) 